Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Having a lighter footprint and, and being a bit more connected to the natural world, um, for me, just you know, opens so many exciting doors rather than closes them. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 73 with Emily Penn. Emily is a skipper and ocean advocate. She's dedicated her career to solving the issue of plastic pollution after experiencing the true horrors of ocean plastic pollution as a sailor. As well as travelling the world by boat, Emily also empowers other women to undertake journeys on the seas and has volunteered her body for science experiments to explore the plastic issue in more detail. In this episode, Emily talks about how we're contributing to the plastic problem and the impact it's truly having on all of us individually. She shares some sobering facts, but also delivers a profound message of hope. It is, after all, down to us, and it's solvable. Before we get started, I wanted to mention something new. This is the first episode of our fifth season, and we've decided to work with a charitable partner on the podcast hopefully introducing you to an amazing initiative that's doing outstanding work in our areas of interest. For season five, that organisation is the Martin Moran Foundation. Martin Moran was one of the most influential mountaineers in Britain. He wasn't a fame and glory hunter, he just quietly got on with what he did, which more often than not was impressive ascents all over the world. Devastatingly, Martin was killed in an avalanche on an expedition in India in 2019. His passion for sharing the spirit of adventure with others left a mark on so many people and now his family want to continue that work. They've set up a foundation to provide mountain adventure programs to young people who have a passion for adventure but don't have the support or resources to access the mountains. They're committed to providing opportunities to a diverse community, championing new voices in the outdoors and elevating the lives of young people through the power of mountain adventure. On a personal note, I know firsthand the life-changing experience that can be found in taking young people into the mountains on organised experiences. I was carted off by school to Scotland aged 16 to go and spend three months in the wilderness with an instructor. That experience fundamentally changed my life, and it was my introduction to the world of mountains and adventure, and I've not looked back since. If you'd like to make a donation, or find other ways you can help, then head to martinmoranfoundation.co.uk or follow at Martin Moran Foundation on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you. 
Finally, as ever, I'll mention that the podcast is supported by our long-standing pals at Sidetrack magazine. So for an extra adventure fix, head to Sidetrack.com. Okay, over to Emily Penn. A great place to start would be just give me the introduction. Um, Who are you? Where do you come from? What do you do? All of that stuff. Absolutely. Um, Well, yeah, lovely to to be here chatting to you today. So I'm Emily Penn. I'm a skipper and an ocean advocate. I've spent the last 12 years mostly at sea studying the issue of plastic pollution. Um, My journey actually began, I, I originally trained as an architect and I lined up my first job as an architect in Australia and wanted to get there without taking an aeroplane and ended up taking a boat across the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. And that's when I saw this plastics issue and I just couldn't really look away. And the issue has just grabbed me year after year, a different face of it and a different part of the problem to solve. And here I am now, 12 years later, still tackling it, still unsolved, but huge amount of progress has been made. Um, And so most of my work in the recent years has been taking other people with me on these adventures through my Project X expedition, a series of all women sailing voyages out to these gyres uh, to do a lot of scientific research, to do the important storytelling communications piece, and then most importantly, build this community or army of change makers who can come back home and solve it. Where does that all begin? Were you, you know, outdoorsy? I hate that word, but were you outdoorsy as a child and were you into sailing? I was, yeah. I learned to sail when I was about five, just on holiday in Devon in an Optimist, which is about the size of a bathtub. Um, I actually have a very vivid memory of sinking in the middle of a harbour in Devon and having to get rescued by the harbour master. Um, I think they were a bit horrified that my parents had gone off to back a spot on the beach while I was sort of drifting around this harbour. But I loved it. Um, and I went on then to race competitively for Britain in my teenage years. And then I kind of got to 18 and had to make that decision of, do I want to carry on with a sailing career or do I want to go to university? And having always also been quite academic and quite artistic, I decided to go down the route of, of heading off to uni to study architecture. Well, that must have been hard. It must have been difficult to leave one. Yeah, I don't know, though. I feel like when you're a teenager, you just feel like you've got the rest of your life in front of you. And I think I thought, go get the degree. And I was probably more passionate about that than, than racing. And that's probably now reflected in what I do today. I, I love sailing and I love taking people out there and sharing this raw beauty of our planet that I feel you find in the middle of the ocean, which you rarely find on land. Um, I I love that process. But actually, for me, sailing has become more and more um, the means to what I do rather than the end itself. Um, So I think it's probably quite telling that I was always interested in something more uh, than the sport. I guess that's the interesting word, right, is sport. I mean, sailing, you know, traditionally conventionally was not about racing or endurance or sport yeah absolutely and it was about exploration or, or cargo you know all sorts of transport so you've come to Cambridge Uni and trained to be an architect 
what was the intention, the long-term intention? To be an architect. I, I absolutely loved it. You know, I, I've carried a sketchbook around with me since I was about probably 15 and tried to draw or paint every day in my teenage years and in my 20s. I wish I could say I still do now in my mid-30s, but um, unfortunately, it's not quite the case. Um, but I, I just love sitting down, taking in the, the landscape, the view, the cityscape, whatever's around me, and that process of, of capturing it and kind of really immersing in the moment as well, as you do so. Uh, so I loved art. And then, to be honest, I was a bit of a science and maths geek as well. Um, so architecture, I think, you know, age 16, when you get presented with not that many options of what a career looks like it, it on paper was the one that made sense and it absolutely did you know I got to university and I loved it I absolutely loved that process of being given a brief which to me I always saw as a kind of problem that I then had to create a solution to solve and I've always been a problem solver and I just love going on that journey and it's very much what I still feel like I do today and what I love about my job. I still feel like an architect of all the projects that I put together and create. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And I don't know, I mean, whether or not we delve too much into the childhood, I'm not sure, but it seems like you've got this intense and immense drive. You know, I don't know that many recent graduates think, well, most are thinking, can I go and get a job? Not many think, oh, I've got a job, I'm going to go and hitchhike there via sea where does that confidence come from do you think yeah I think there's probably when I look back now to my childhood I can definitely see moments when my parents really helped me um have that sense of having control of my own life um that sense of adventure of of going off and kind of being responsible for my decisions you know they were never um would tell me what to do, often to my huge frustration, because, you know, there's some decisions you're trying to make as a teenager and you think, but mum, you always know best. Can you just tell me the answer? Because I can't figure it out for myself. And they never, ever did. Um, and, you know, they they sent me off to France as a, to, as a sort of um, exchange student when I was about eight on my own and things like that, that just meant I had those experiences from a young age. But I think... So that probably led to then the next big decision that, that got me as that, to that stepping stone of hitchhiking around the world, which was when I was in between my second and third year at university, I had to write a dissertation for architecture. And I was really fascinated in sustainability and environmental design. I think that that also spans way back into childhood of being quite connected and aware of the natural world. Um, and so I came across this eco city that was being built in Shanghai. And so I thought, right, I'm going to go write my dissertation on this eco city. And I thought, but I can't really take an aeroplane to go and visit a zero carbon city. <laughs> and because of that, I decided to then take a train, a camel and a horse across Europe, Russia, Mongolia and down through China. And fell in love with this idea of traveling slowly because you get to experience all those subtle changes in culture and climate and landscape and most of all the people who I was meeting along the way. And I think that was the moment when I thought, 
I don't want to get on a plane again. You know, there's too much great stuff in between that I'm going to miss. And then hence the next year I had that drive to say my job's in Australia again. I'm going to not take a plane getting there. Do you think traveling like that changes your perception and perspective on the place that you visit? Definitely. Arriving somewhere um, slowly, I think you get a chance to, to process uh, what you're about to, where you're about to end up. And I find the same about sailing compared to if I'd have taken a plane from London to Shanghai, I would have arrived jet lagged, culture shocked, climate shocked, probably, you know, in the middle of the night, completely dazed and disorientated, plonked down in this new city. But instead, when I arrived, the changes had been so subtle the whole way. It was just natural. I just stepped off and I was there and it took it all in my stride, I think, in way and, and understood it better in ways that I wouldn't have if I'd have taken a plane. Yeah, it's something that I, I think about quite regularly having these sorts of conversations is, um, you know, when you fly, it is you, you hop out of somewhere and you hop into somewhere else, but they're all linked and they're all connected. And actually that there's a slow change rather than the culture shock, as you say, it's, it happens slowly when you move through it slowly. Exactly. And it's so definitely the power of slow journeys when you're arriving somewhere allow you to prepare. But then I also found, you'd skip forward a few years, I was then on this little Tongan Island organizing an enormous cleanup event uh, in Tonga and ended up then wanting to head to the States a few years later. And by this point, hadn't got on a plane for about three and a half years, despite traveling around the planet and, and nearly halfway back and ended up going on a container ship and spent those six weeks hitchhiking on freighters back across the Pacific, writing up and consolidating everything that I'd kind of learned. So there's two parts. One's the preparation, but the other one is really having a chance to then process what you've just found out before you just parachute yourself back home and suddenly you're in the pub with your friends having a drink, <laughs> you know, without that moment of, of being able to put it all together and make sense of it. I mean, it's fascinating because I've talked to so many people about the, the shock of coming home and actually particularly people operating in extremes, you know, use mountaineers as an example. You do what you do, you get on a plane and suddenly you're home and you know, I've talked to them about sitting in the mill pile in Tesco's and crying. But part of that's the reintegration, right? Whereas mm. how long? Six weeks on container ships? Yeah. You can do a lot of thinking in that time. You can. <laughs> And you then arrive kind of charged and ready. And so were the container ships an experience in and of themselves? Uh, definitely, yes. So I ended up going on two ships, one up from New Zealand through lots of the little South Pacific islands that I'd been to and lived on already, changed ship there, and then a long one then all the way back across the Pacific to the west coast of California um, with a full Filipino crew on the, the second boat. Um, yeah, and I mean, that was an experience. <laughs> they, they were pretty hilarious. Um, we stopped mid-ocean to um, catch squid and put them on the barbecue, you know, one night when they all had a bit of a, a chilled Sunday. And I mean, also what was horrifying was what we were transporting, to be honest, uh, which was a, an entire container ship full of tuna that had just been pulled out of the Central Pacific. 
um, going into into the States and just to see the volumes of fish and the rate that we're emptying our oceans really, really hit at home for me. Yeah, God, I bet that's a striking image. So how does one go about hitchhiking on a container ship? You just, you know, stick your thumb out at port and... It was actually a lot harder than I thought. So the first trip around the world on this crazy rocket ship called Earth Race was actually ended up being more straightforward. I kind of applied for a role, turned up for, um, wasn't really an interview. It was um, show up and prove how you can do and we'll see how you get on. Um, and then the more days that you lasted, you know, the more days you stayed. And, and that you know ended up getting me all the way around to Australia, New Zealand after a year. But the freighter ship, there was so much red tape and there's so many different companies involved. There's one company that manages the crew, another one that owns the boat, another one that is the shipping line, another one that runs the port. And I had to basically get all of them to approve. When I was living in Tonga, uh, coordinating this cleanup, we accumulated 56 tons of rubbish in five hours with 3,000 volunteers. And I needed to then ship that off this little Tongan island. Um, and so that's actually how I got to know the, the shipping companies was through that project. And I think without that connection, it would have been pretty much impossible to get that ride. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not, it's not the sort of thing you just go on a forum and then that's that. No, I thought I could just show up at the port and try and, you know, meet a captain or get, get someone inspired and, and, and sort of, you know, let me do the, the dishes or something um, <laughs> across the Pacific and then earn my keep. But they wouldn't let me do anything because I didn't have the right health and safety certificates um, to even wash dishes on a boat, apparently. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was going to be a lot easier. It turned out there was a lot of red tape. So I'm, I'm very, very aware that we could do hours on each of these components. So what was the Australia journey like? Yeah. So when you say the Australia journey, you mean that first trip around the world? The, yeah. 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 And that was, like the, I think, the most sort of pivotal for me when, when the biggest changes happened. And we first we crossed the Atlantic, took a couple of weeks, um, I think one of the bizarre things about that is we had fishing lines out the whole time and we didn't catch a single fish. Just got to the other side thinking that the Atlantic was empty and it, it did really feel like that. But, you know, it was fun. It was my first experience of being offshore. Um, in fact, it was the first time I'd even slept on a boat was setting sail across the Atlantic. <laughs> Although I grew up sailing tiny boats, you, you know, you're never on it for more than a few hours at a time. Luckily, finding out that I didn't get seasick and um, that I actually loved being out at sea. Um, we didn't have any fresh water on board, so we had to go swimming every day to have a wash. Um, I learned to wakeboard at the Mid-Atlantic Cross seven days from land, which was fine for the first few seconds while I was up. And then the moment I wiped out, that boat just carried on going out of view and you're there in the very middle of the Atlantic <laughs> thinking, I hope they can find me. Looking back probably wasn't the smartest thing to do, but uh, definitely seemed great fun at the time. And then we went through the Caribbean, through the Panama Canal, which is, you know, something now I've had the chance to do many times and, and still love it every time. It's such an experience. 
But it was really the Pacific where things started to change. And it was one day when I was going for that daily swim, uh, when I found myself coming up to the surface to see a toothbrush, a bottle top, a cigarette lighter, all kind of passing by. And by this point, we were hundreds of miles, probably 800 miles from land um, at the furthest point. And you start looking around thinking, (laughs) where on earth has this plastic come from? There must be an explanation because surely it can't just be out here. Um, and, And then we carried on going and again and again and went on for days and days of seeing plastic just passing by the boat. And we'd then stop at these little islands, often uninhabited, you know, incredible marine life. We'd have all of the sharks come and gather around the boat the moment that we uh, laid anchor and um, amazing manta rays coming into these, what they call cleaning stations in the middle of um, these atolls in the Pacific where all the little fish come and kind of um, clean the manta rays. So they all accumulate there as well. And, um, you know, this amazing, amazing marine life. And then at the same time, beaches, where I was just going shin deep in plastic bottles, plastic containers, fishing debris. Um, and yeah, it, it didn't make any sense to me. It's something that I had never, ever come across growing up, just the, the idea that it was happening. And in fact, my parents sailed around the South Pacific um, when they met, and that's how they met, actually. And so I had grown up with these stories from my parents about this paradise of the South Pacific. And I got there and thought, this is not what I had imagined in any way. Um, and then the interactions with the, the islanders when we visited the inhabited islands and finding out how much they were struggling to grow food in the ground because of the rising sea levels causing their soil to become brackish, that they couldn't actually grow crops and that they were trying to catch fish and finding that actually there were no fish left in their their waters uh, because of the commercial fishing vessels. And then their new reliance on importing packaged food. Uh, They were shipping tuna, packaged tin tuna, from 3,000 miles away into the middle of the biggest tuna fishery in the world Um, and and paying for it, you know, huge amounts. Um, And so it, it just layer on layer, I just kept seeing these situations um, where I thought, you know, this isn't right, this needs to change. Um, And so much so that by the time I got to the other side of the Pacific, uh, everything had changed for me. And I I really felt like I needed to do something about plastic and some of these other issues. Um, And so set off in that direction, postponing the architecture job. Here I am 12 years later, still postponing it. (laughs) Did you have a moment was there one moment where you thought okay I am going to sort this out or was it just a, a slow gradual build it it was gradual I mean I, I do like to talk about something called a shift moment that moment when you know you have an experience and it changes your perspective but I would say it was that whole Pacific crossing was my shift moment and it was layer on layer of those things that I was seeing I think though despite that although I was moved by it it wasn't like I then got to the other end and thought, actually, now I'm going to have a career in, you know, sailing around the world, looking at this issue and trying to change it. it. Again, that was gradual. It probably took 
three years before I realized that this is something that I was actually going to go and do for the rest of my life, rather than um, it just being a gap year or another gap year and a third gap year. Um, it, it still felt like something temporary that I would just do for a while. And then I'd go back to the conventional life that I thought I was going to have. I think, you know, these topics there, there's a, there's the sinister side to all of this, right? And I think there's a, you know, I try to keep these things a little bit cheery, but that's quite, it's quite shocking, isn't it? That Particularly the point about your parents, I think, you know, they told you that this place was paradise and the first time you get to go and see it, it's the antithesis. It's a plastic waste ground. Yeah. What does that do to you? I actually just found it, I think, a bit confusing, um, but then also made me quite determined because I knew that it, it, it could be different, you know, so I moved beyond that kind of, this doesn't make sense. And then I think I just saw it as an, an architecture brief. <laughs> I saw it as a problem that I had to create a solution to, to solve. Um, and so that side of my brain kicked in and, and, and off I went um, and probably didn't think too much about it back then. Um, but I, I also remember having those moments, um, I really remember a call with my dad when I was living in Tonga and um, saying to him, when I, I think I was feeling a bit of pressure from all of my friends who I graduated with. I felt like they were all back in London, moved into flat shares in Clapham, having a whale of a time, got their first jobs. And there I was washed up on this little Pacific island, you know, living with a group of locals, picking up trash, literally being a rubbish lady. And remember sort of saying to my dad, I, you know, I don't know, am I, am I onto the right, I feel like I'm onto something, but, but I'm also not sure because actually anyone could be out here picking up plastic. You know, you don't need to have an architecture degree to do this. And I remember him saying to me, but no one else is there and you're there and you must be there for a reason. And that really helped me kind of think, yeah, you know, you're right. There is no one else here. Um, and this is what this island needs. And, and I did feel like I was onto something. And it took years for the rest of the world to see the plastics issue. But I think having seen it so personally during that voyage, I, I just couldn't look away. And I knew when the rest of the world saw it, they wouldn't be able to look away either. So what did you do? So the first step was the project in Tonga. Um, I thought I was going to go for a few weeks and organize a cleanup. So this was a place that we'd sailed through on Earth Race. We'd seen the problem. One particular moment that stands out was actually seeing a group of um, boys in the, one of the local schools. They were digging a huge hole and they had a pile of broken computers next to this hole that they were about to bury. These were computers that had been donated as an aid donation from Australia and New Zealand to these islands that basically arrived, you know, 1990s desktops getting sent up because they got some kind of tax break for doing it. I mean, an awful scheme that thankfully has now stopped. But that was when I, I remember seeing this pile of computers and them about to dump it into the, on this low-lying island where it was going to contaminate the water table. I didn't really know much about any, any waste back then, but I could tell this wasn't a good idea. And, you know, went up to them and said, I, I don't know what the solution is here, but I know that that's not it. Let's try and find a better one. And that almost gave me a commitment then that I needed to go back 
and solve how to get this, you know, pile of computers basically off this island. Only when I got back there, I think I realized that I had barely even scratched the surface with understanding what the issue was. Um, and so it really helped then meeting this, this local family who were absolutely delighted to have me join their 22-person family. Um, they all live, you know, obviously in these very extended households, had lots of daughters my age, and they thought it was great that I could, you know, talk to them in English and um, and, and about the outside world. So, um, you know, we, we really hit it off. I had a place to live. I had food to eat. And then I started, you know, learning more, really, talking to the youth groups, the community groups, the government and the schools. And it wasn't until then I started to try and learn Tongan, Tongan language, so that I could go into the schools and talk about plastic and the ocean, that I found out there wasn't even a word for bin or for rubbish. And that's when it started to sink in that it's not just infrastructure that Tonga or pretty much the rest of the world, you know, needs, but it's a way of thinking, particularly when it comes to this plastics issue, which for them is a really, really new problem. Um, up until recently, a banana peel, coconut husk, a fish bone could be thrown on the ground with no consequence. So it was the fact that now, you know, they had... Um, Western, Chinese, you, you know, all selling them all of this plastic wrapped stuff with no responsibility then for the waste, for, for shipping it away or even any kind of waste management system on these islands. Um, and so that realization actually that we need to think about plastic differently to a coconut husk is not even something I realized that needed to be a thing on, on this island, but it was actually the most important thing. And so that's then why I decided to stay for six months um, and, and work on an education program across all of the schools to be able to bring that understanding into the community so that then when we did have a system by the end of that six months, it was actually adopted um, because people genuinely wanted to do it rather than it was just something that was was laid on or, um, you know, that nobody then used. Um, so that was the first project. But I was still just dealing with the end result of the problem. You know, it still felt a bit like sticking a plaster on the wound rather than actually healing it. Um, and so I think, you know, my journey since then has been sort of taking me closer and closer to the source um, of, of solving the problem. And the big bit within that journey then was, of course, understanding it more. And that's where these scientific research expeditions have come in. Because the more I tried to learn about the issue, the more I realized that we didn't know. And it's very hard to solve a problem that you don't understand. And I, I learned that at architecture school. The first thing you do is you go and interview the people who are going to be living in your building. Um, you know, you, you really research and research and research, and then you create the solution. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It feels like a match made in heaven. You know, that attitude and that kind of learned behavior and that learned method, taking that across into conservation. It feels, um, I don't know, results driven rather than narrative driven, which is probably very useful. I guess so. Yeah, it was all, all about, yeah, what, what's the outcome? What's the impact? What can change? So what did change on Tonga? On Tonga, well, um, when I left, uh, we took away 56 tonnes of rubbish <laughs> for a start um, on, a, on a very big container ship. There was a long-term system left in place that everybody knew how to use, what went where. You know, the very first cleanup I did when I arrived with a, a bunch of kids we went off to pick up the plastic and they came back with the palm fronds and the coconut husks as well as the plastic. So and um, just understanding how to split your waste, um, you know, was one thing that was really then left behind on that island of, of having a system, but also how to use it. Um, and then a way for that waste to get into the mainstream of waste on the larger islands in Tonga. Um, so that was the key. And that's the challenge with islands everywhere around the world is the transport cost of waste is so huge and it's not factored in obviously to the um, importing of the product in the first place Um, and so trying to set up a system that at least got it back into the waste stream um, was absolutely key. And then I'm going to you know come back to all of that at the end but what silly question easy question what did you do next? So um Went back to New Zealand, where I'd been just before that project on another boat. (laughs) Met a a New Zealand couple who were looking for a crew to help them sail back. So sailed back into New Zealand um, in a big storm and then set up uh, an organization called Sustainable Coastlines with some Kiwis who I'd been um, also working on that project in Tonga with kind of remotely. And um, and then set about, you know, trying to get others involved, basically, with community-led cleanup projects, which really then kicked off in New Zealand. And so I spent three or four months doing that while I also pieced together this freighter ship journey to get me to California. Because I think I'd got to a point where I knew that I needed to do more than clean up. Um, and... A lot of the world experts at the time who were out there in these gyres, these accumulation zones, they were based in California. And so really that became the place that I wanted to go to learn more, to meet these people, to volunteer for them, to do whatever I could to get involved on the research side. Um, And so then off I went on, on this freighter, arrived into California, met with the Five Gyres Institute, um, spent many days in their lab analyzing the samples that they'd previously collected in the North Pacific and then uh, working with scientists on some of the, the, the mapping as well and understanding why the plastic accumulates in these so-called islands um, of which the Great Pacific Garbage Patch was the one that was then starting to be talked about in the media um, why it accumulates there, and then the fact that it accumulates there because of these ocean currents, that actually the same phenomenon of ocean currents happens in another four parts of our planet as well. And so that was the point when this concept for 
sailing to the five gyres began. Um, and so I was then part of that team. I led the, the vessel operations to run that project, to sail to those other four gyres and find out if there was plastic there too. And the end result is that? There's a lot. <laughs> yes. But, but not what we thought. You know, we, we literally went searching for islands and we got there and we realised that actually these islands don't exist. There's not these huge masses of plastic that you could build houses on or, you know, stick your flag in and claim it as your territory. You know, you, you can't walk on it. It's, but it's worse than that. It's a soup of fragments that are smaller than your little fingernail. You can't even see them when you look at the surface of the water. Um, but they're there on the surface. They're suspended just under the surface. And we've now got over five trillion of them floating and probably many times more than that sinking um, in a place so deep that, that still we haven't been able to measure the extent of. And so I think what went from a, you know, how do we go out and research this mission and set up this amazing ocean cleanup project um, turned into actually you can't clean it up. And the only solution is prevention and stopping it at the source and stopping any more plastic getting in. Um, and so that was a big part then of that next few years of understanding um, and, and realizing actually that the, the problem was different to what we thought and the solution was different as well. How do you remain hopeful when that turns out to be the result? I think in a way though, the fact that this plastic covers our oceans, which is 70% of our planet, and then there's these point sources of plastic right here at home on our doorsteps. You could actually argue that the solution's easier because going out, you know, and I certainly know this from sailing across these oceans, you know, even though I've sailed around the world, uh, you can't see my inverted commas there, but, um, you, you know, you, you sort of, you, you feel like, you, you know, you've seen a lot of the world and then you look at it on a map and you realise you've seen this tiny, tiny, tiny little slice <laughs> um, of the world. And the idea of being able to cover every patch of our ocean to clean it up, um, it just kind of blows my mind, especially when the whole thing moves and there's waves and, um, and it's very, very unpredictable. But the idea of actually preventing it feels a lot more in our control because every bit of plastic that's out there was some, somewhere at some point in someone's hand. It was a toothbrush inside their mouth. It was a shoe on their foot. You know, they're these personal items that we're in touch with every day. They're very much in our control. And I, I think that it was a big realization that, okay, we've got to do this differently, but also, you know, quite hopeful because I don't feel like this, this is impossible. Um, it's completely within our ability. So how does it end up in the water? So a lot of it ends up going down streams, drains, rivers from parts of the world that don't have waste management systems like ours here in the UK. But also that doesn't mean that we point the finger. Um, we also look at our own waste. And you've probably seen in the news recently, you know, there has been a lot of talk about how we've been sending our plastic to China. Uh, are recyclable plastic, but it doesn't actually get recycled. Only 9% of our plastic globally gets recycled. Um, when China stopped taking it, we started sending it to Malaysia. Malaysia have stopped taking it. Now it's going to Turkey. Um, you know, so 
we we send it away and who knows what happens to it when it gets um to these other parts of the world we're essentially paying them to to deal with it to dump it to burn it and to recycle um anything that is of value that they can um so it is it is partly you know our problem as well the other interesting unseen impact that we all have here in the UK is every time you buy something from another country so you buy a mobile phone that's been manufactured in China there's about five times as much material than the weight of your mobile phone that's been discarded in the supply chain just in making that one item and you export the nice polished mobile phone it probably even comes in a cardboard box and you feel good about the plastic free packaging but there is this trail of plastic that's been discarded as the components have gone from one factory to another packaged thrown away the offcuts of material not to mention then the pollution and the carbon dioxide for the energy that's been um, used to to create that and so we export the product but we leave behind the pollution um, and so every time we buy something from a nation that doesn't have an adequate waste management system, we're also contributing to the problem. Um, we're contributing to it when we put our clothes in the washing machine, of which 60% of our clothes are made of plastic. And every time you wash a T-shirt, a jumper, hundreds of pieces of polyester microplastic go down your drain and end up in the sea. I'm going to ask you a very deliberate, a stupid question deliberately, but why does this matter? Why should we care? So, we, I mean, a good question. Um, we, we know the impact that it's having on marine life, for sure. You know, that's been now well documented over the last 10 years, um, how marine life is mistaking it for food. It's getting in its stomach. It's um, you know, stopping it being able to feed and then you die of starvation or it tangles it up um, and, and dies that way. Um, but it also it is getting into us as well. And the consequences of that are still sort of unknown, really, scientifically. There's a couple of things going on. There's one, the kind of physical pieces of plastic. So those polyester fibers I mentioned that are on your clothes on your upholstery in your homes, it's essentially dust. Um, you know, whenever you see dust in your home, that used to be um, little bits of skin and hair. Most of it now is actually little bits of, of plastic fibers um, from around your house. And so when we breathe that in, when it settles on our food as we're cooking it, um, when it settles on our glass of water that's by our bed at night, um, and it gets into us, you know, we're actually eating about a credit card of plastic a week um, or, or breathing it in without, without realizing. Now, what that's actually doing to us, it's hard to say um, because there's still very little understanding about these tiny, tiny particles and when they um, get into our bodies. What's a bit more well known is, is the chemical side of this story. So plastic is manufactured with chemicals like phthalates that make plastic stretchy and flexible and um, flame retardants that stop it combusting and fluorinated compounds that make it waterproof. Um, and all of these chemicals, they're really useful, <laughs> great properties that we, we all enjoy and love, but 
when they get into the environment and into our bodies, they are toxic and they can lead to cancer and they can disrupt our hormones. Um, And so back in 2014, I became really interested in this because we know that there's all these chemicals in the ocean, in the plastic, in the fish that we were finding in our samples. And we know that they're really toxic when they get into humans that are also at the top of the food chain. And and these chemicals bio-magnify up the food chain as well. But I wanted to know, is this something we even need to worry about? I mean, are these chemicals even getting into our bodies? And so I ended up partnering with the United Nations to have a blood test for 35 chemicals that they found because of their toxicity. And of those 35 chemicals, we found 29 of them in my blood really nasty things. And, oh, I mean, this was another of those shift moments for me when I just discovered something that I absolutely was not expecting. And it it really did change everything. Um, I'd grown up thinking I was quite conscious. You know, I had sort of slightly dotty parents that had an allotment where I was always the kid that had to show up at the sleepover with um, beetroot with the stalks on instead of a packet of crisps and a box of chocolates you know so I, I would, I'd grown up thinking I was eating organic and um, not putting nasty products on my skin and, and generally just sort of quite conscious to then find that you know actually I have this chemical footprint I'm afraid we all have this chemical footprint and at the moment those levels they aren't alarmingly high that we need to be immediately concerned of our health but the fact that it's getting worse, the fact that it's happening, um, I found very scary. And that was actually um, the reason that I started X Expedition. You'll notice that double X representing the all women nature of these voyages. Because when I looked into the impacts of a lot of these chemicals that, that we call endocrine disruptors, they mimic our hormones and they stop important chemical messages moving around our bodies. So during pregnancy, when those hormones are essential, that they arrive at the right time to the right place, you know, can can be hugely problematic. And then we can also pass these chemicals on to our children when we give birth and then when we breastfeed. And so that's why I felt, wow, this is quite a female centered issue. And why not tackle it with an amazing team of women? And so we set off in 2014 to sail across the North Atlantic with an amazing team of multinational, multidisciplinary women to find out more. Um, And what I thought was going to be a one-off voyage has now turned into, uh, quickly turned into 11 more voyages and then around the world mission that we set off in 2019 to complete. I was about to ask how you managed to remain hopeful, but it sounds like that might be part of the answer. Yeah, I think probably actually my answer to remaining hopeful and positive has shifted. And I think back when I was um, this, you know, sort of kind of carefree, maybe carefree is not the right word, but no strings, no ties, adventuring around the world on my mission to discover the next thing, I was really captivated by the beauty of our planet and the awe that I felt when I was immersed in nature, particularly when I was living for those years in the South Pacific, um, where I just woke up every day feeling so lucky to be alive and lucky to be in these amazing places that I couldn't think of anything else other than 
trying to keep them that way um, and help them actually go back to the way my parents saw them um, a generation earlier. Um, but as time's gone on, I think it's really changed for me. And what gets me out of bed every day now is actually just the sheer volume of people that want to do something. And I wake up every day to a flooded inbox. I go and give a talk and, you know, there's hundreds of people wanting to connect. And it's amazing the energy out there of people putting their hand up saying, I get it. I care. I want to do something. And, you know, I really see my job now as, as helping people, companies, governments work out how they can best use their energy, best use what I like to call their superpowers, the thing that makes them unique and brilliant, the opportunity that they have that nobody else has. How can they use that to tackle this problem, you know, to play their part in it? Um, and that's a huge part of what I now do today. And it, it definitely keeps me going. There's so much to be hopeful for. I think it's the, you know, it's all the cheesy, cheesy cliche questions that you get asked in this stage of conversations, obviously, because <laughs> it's a difficult subject that you just can't leave as, hey, everyone, look, it's all really messed up. And there you go. Lovely to chat. See you later. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, this sort of environmental movement has been going on for decades, um, although probably most of us will say it's only been in the last five years that it's come onto our radar because, you know, decades ago it was doom and gloom and that the only way you could be part of it is if you, you know, switched your wardrobe to hemp and you walked everywhere and you, you know, it was all about doing less, using less, having less fun, this really negative message. Whereas I think the way I see it is that actually um, it's, there's so much more, you know, <laughs> that actually having a, a lighter footprint and, and being a bit more connected to the natural world, and um, for me, just you know, opens so many exciting doors rather than closes them. Yeah, and it, this drifts into tangent land again. But it, we're a generation of you know, lots of purposeless people. There's no great, great war. We you know we've all got, um, you know, with the, with the middle class moving as it is and things changing and expanding. You know this is a pretty good purpose to nail your colors to and to say hey i'm going to jump on this i'm going to join this and i'm going to make the world a better place because i don't know sometimes i feel like personal journey like i felt really overwhelmed by it should i just go vegan should i stop flying should i live in a cave and try not to breathe um and it's difficult to find an answer and you know i, I am going to go down the cheesy cliche route of asking you what the quick fixes are but I think maybe it's worth having a, you know, with our remaining minutes, having a slightly more deep conversation about that of, yes, okay, we should switch to a bamboo toothbrush maybe, but what can we do with the rest of our lives to, and our lifestyles to try and answer this question and solve this problem? Mm, absolutely. And I completely agree that there's a lot of people out there now who, you know, are in a position where we're not just on our hierarchy of needs. And, um, you, you know, we're not just worrying about feeding ourselves and being safe. Um, but actually, we, we are in this position where we have the luxury, which not everyone on the planet today has at all. But a lot of us are in the position where we have the luxury to, to think about um, doing something that that is impactful, you know, that we don't have to to just work to to pay the bills and actually a lot of us would prefer to choose something impactful over um, a little bit more income and so I think you know that that's a great opportunity you know for for people out there who, who want to be able to do more 
the, the challenge is working out what that is. Um, and it's the question that I get asked more than anything is, you know, hi, this is me. I do this. How can I be part of it? And so I suppose that's where I really try to help people look for what they can offer. Um, and I, I love turning this around. And I think probably because I found it got me so far at the beginning of my career is rather than going to um, the organization in California that I went to saying, can you help me? I'm trying to know this. Instead, I went to them and said, this is what I can do for you. And they couldn't really say no. <laughs> and so I managed to walk through the door and then learned so much from the people uh, that I then surrounded myself with. And so, you know, for a lot of people at the beginning of their journey, I would say, you know, you, you already have an incredible amount to offer. <laughs> it's just a case of working out what it is and then being able to, to articulate it to, to, to those others that you want to connect with um, and, and collaborate with. And so identifying your superpower, um, you might have seen one of those great Venn diagrams that's sort of got um, what you love, what you're good at, and what the world needs overlaid. And it's about finding that sweet spot in the middle. If you can get the fourth ring in there of what pays me, then even better, because you can carry on doing it for longer. Um, but get the those three lined up first, and usually you'll find a way to bring the fourth one in um, once you get a bit of momentum. So working out that unique thing, and, and I'm a big believer that, you know, we, we don't need everyone to do everything. We just need everyone to do something. And, and all of those micro actions will, will add up. And I think what supports that is, you know, I talked earlier about understanding the problem to be able to solve, solve it. And there's many ways I've kind of talked about then our approach to, to solution finding on land and at the source but the other thing that struck me from our scientific research is that when we look at the polymer type, which helps indicate where that plastics come from and the type of plastic and what its use once was on land, particularly these microplastics that are so anonymous, I think what overwhelms me more than ever is that there's not one obvious thing, but that there's hundreds and there's very few patterns when you're looking at it. But all that leads me to think is that actually the sources of plastic pollution are endless. And so the solutions are endless as well. And that's why there isn't a silver bullet. There's not one thing that you can wake up tomorrow or that I can tell you now and say, if everybody in the world did this one thing, we'd solve the problem. Because what we need is diversity. We need to replace plastic with hundreds of different things Otherwise, we're at risk of creating a bigger problem somewhere else. If we replace all plastic with some amazing algae-based alternative, which does exist out there, and it's great for some applications, but we can't use it for everything because we'll create an algae problem. Um, and so I think having, having that sort of idea that actually, you know, you're doing your thing, you're doing your thing, I'm doing my thing, and that's what we need. Um, is is absolutely the way that we're going to solve the plastics problem. Um, it's how we've approached COVID to some extent. You know that it's not just social distancing or washing hands or masks or vaccines, or, you know, or testing. That it's actually a bit of everything that's going to eventually solve it. And I think it's the same with all these global problems, um, which is why we need a diverse army to be tackling it. And it's not just scientists um, who need to solve this problem. 
we need communicators and storytellers and product designers and industry leaders and policymakers who can all kind of tackle it in their own way. I think that's just such an amazing attitude. I completely, completely agree. And that's the part of the problem, I think, with the modern world is we we feel, I don't want to speak on behalf of everybody, maybe I should just say I, I, I feel like we're being confronted with everything. Go vegan, don't fly, don't do this, don't do that. And it's just so overwhelming that in the end, you sit back and think, well, can't do anything, I'm just going to give up. But actually, like you say, it's, you know, little changes, conscious, I feel conscious changes, living consciously. I don't know, I get off on some ramble, but there's this big live simply movement. I'm a bit opposed to that. I think we should live deeply. Let's think about what we do and let's think about why we do it and what the result of that is. You're so right. Yeah, one one's thoughtful action is, um, you know, so much more important than, than 10, um, you know, sort of mindless ones. And um, I think, you know, there's a lot of greenwashing at the moment that you kind of can't avoid and it's, it is hard. It's hard to wade through. And I, and I wish it was a simpler message um, that I could kind of, you know, say, just do this one thing. But the reality is we just need to be thoughtful and we just need to be able to think, OK, what is it that I'm trying to do and how do I do that with the minimal footprint? And unfortunately, everything that you're trying to do, the answer is going to be slightly different. And so it does take a bit of brain power, um, but it's also not that hard. I think that's what I keep coming back to. Human beings have done some phenomenal stuff. You know, we've put a man on the moon. <laughs> we've gone to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. We can really figure out how to live our lives without single-use plastic. I always ask people two questions. The second one you've answered over and over again, but we're going to get there anyway. But the first one is, what scares you? I suppose it's probably probably something that's changed over the years um i think the idea of not having that drive and purpose to jump out of bed for every morning i, I can't imagine a world where i wouldn't have that but i would be really lost without it what gives you hope if i was to sum up all the things i've talked about it, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's people it's yeah and particularly right now um, it's it's the attitude and the willingness that, that I'm kind of feeling in an overwhelming way at the moment. Ace, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you. It's been great to chat. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit the Adventure Podcast at co.uk or follow us on Instagram at the Adventure Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. They do make the world of difference. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders, Alex Hall and Kate Bullivan. If you'd like to get in touch with feedback or an idea, then please do email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.